This is Poured Over, a show about stories presented by the booksellers of Barnes & Noble. I'm Miwa Messer. I'm the producer and host of Poured Over. And yes, you know Madeline Miller's name from the Song of Achilles and Circe. But we have a wild little novella that is just out called Galatea. And I know it says a short story on the jacket, but novella, short story. It is wild. This story is so great and it's tiny and it is a perfect size. And I should have held this up right away, but it is tiny and amazing. And Madeline, it is so good to see you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for joining us. Can we talk about the origin of this tiny, tiny, magnificent book? (laughs) Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited to be here. So with Song of Achilles and with Circe, my novels, I was really drawing from a lot of different myths, although I was primarily rooted in Homer. But with Galatea, I was really sourced in Ovid's version of the story in particular. And it was a version of the story that I had taught many, many times. And apparently, every time I taught it, I was getting angrier and angrier (laughs) at the story. So eventually, this sort of these feelings I had about working with this myth. So the story of, of is usually called the story of Pygmalion, because actually in Ovid's version of the myth, he doesn't actually even name the statue woman. Um, She's just, you know, the woman. That's very interesting, too, that she doesn't even get a name. It's later versions where the Galatea name comes in. Um, So anyway, you know, kind of the basic version of the story, as Ovid lays out, is that there's this sculptor, Pygmalion, who is completely horrified by women having sex out in the world. He's disgusted by it. He's just completely like repulsed by female sexuality. So he goes home and he decides to sculpt this beautiful statue of the perfect ideal woman in his mind. And he falls in love with it. And the scenes of him falling in love with it are very, I I have to say, I feel that they're very disturbing. And Ovid, he sort of brings her toys, but they're all like children's toys, which is very disturbing. And eventually he prays to the goddess Aphrodite and the goddess Aphrodite brings her to life and he, you know, falls in love with her and she opens her eyes and and there he is um, as she's coming to life. And then it sort of cuts to, and they lived happily ever after and had a child. And that's sort of the end of the story. And we never find out what it's like to wake up from being a statue or any of that. She never gets her name. And most of all, the thing I kept, you know, thinking about is what would it be like to wake up and have this repulsive person who's obsessed with purity and perfection be the person who's created you, who you're married to and stuck with and basically enslaved by. That was the beginning. <laughs> I'm not the first person who's going to say this, but there's a little bit of Edgar Allan Poe to the way this story unfolds. <laughs> and as I said to you before we started taping, it's very satisfying. Oh, this okay. tiny, tiny book is very satisfying. Get a lot into a lot, a lot of story, which is one of the things we do, you know, having read your earlier work, we know this is what we're going to get. You get these little details and you slide them in and suddenly the reader's eyes get really big. Well, thank you. I do love horror. I mean, I don't love to read it because I'm a huge scaredy cat myself, but I really appreciate what horror does and sort of that eeriness, body horror, all of that. And so I always, there are little bits of that. And it was really fun to play with that, with this. I'm also guessing it didn't take quite as long as it did to write Song of Achilles, which sort of legendarily took you a decade and Circe took you, what, seven years? Yep. When did you start the physical writing of Galatea? 
Um, so it did not, it did not take, I started it at around midnight. <laughs> um, okay. One night when I was going to bed, I was just lying in bed and trying to fall asleep. And oftentimes that's when I start imagining things. And all of a sudden Galatea just started talking to me um, almost sort of from the beginning of the short story. And she had this really um, kind of odd voice. And I thought, huh, that's interesting. I want to keep listening to that voice. And so she was talking and she was talking and I thought, you know what? I, I got to write this down. Hang on. <laughs> so I turned my light back on. I got my computer and I started writing it down. And I basically wrote, and this never happens. Like this is sort of, this is why the ancients talked about the muses. This never happens to me that I sort of get like a, like a, you know, hit by the lightning bolt, but I started writing it down and I, I basically wrote a draft sort of until like 3 a.m., and then put it away. And then I did a bunch of work on it and shaping it, mm -hmm. and sort of teasing it out. But the the core of the story was all done from kind of 12 to 3 a.m. <laughs> okay, I can see that. And part of me is laughing because, you know, Pygmalion obviously became the basis for My Fair Lady and Pretty Woman, which, you know, all props to Julia Roberts and Richard <laughs> Gere. Like, really? Ugh. Sorry. <laughs> Anyway, anyway, and I realize, you know, that movie made bajillions of dollars <laughs> and My Fair Lady has made bajillions of dollars over time. But I mean, yuck. And so obviously I'm appreciating this from a whole different tack where you're just like, well, let's let's subvert the story we know, which is part of what you do. You just subvert everything. <laughs> <laughs> I love subverting. Mm -hmm. I'm, I'm, yes. I love it. I love to read books that do it and I love to mm -hmm. do it. And it's really interesting because even with My Fair Lady, which was originally based on um, Pygmalion by George Bernard Shaw. George Bernard Shaw is much harder on on sort of the the creator figure, the Pygmalion, than My Fair Lady was. Um, and so I, it's it's interesting how there's this kind of push pull between the people who who sort of see what he's doing as this megalomaniacal thing and people who see it as as romantic. And obviously, you can tell the story in lots of different ways, and and that's part of what makes it makes it fun. But the thing that kept sort of jumping out to me is, is people often look at this story as the idea, you know, there, there's so many different ways to read it, like, like any rich myth. And one of the ways people have looked at it is like, this is what happens to an artist, right? Of course, you fall in love with your art. Um, of course, as a writer, as a painter, as a sculptor, you have to fall in love with what you're doing. And so, so people take it as a metaphorical thing, which I totally identify with metaphorically. But if we're going to make this a real woman, who actually comes to life, then it's not, <laughs> then it's extremely disturbing. What would it be like to have been, to have to live up to that obsession with perfection and purity? And, and I think that, that that desire to force women into perfection and purity is still very much a part of our culture mm -hmm. and is very disturbingly out there. And so I, that was also something that I wanted to, and, and how often women get policed for how they're allowed to behave. They have to sort of be the statue. They have to, you know, receive the gaze of the rest of the world, particularly the, the male gaze. So all of that was stuff I was thinking about, but it was also really fun to imagine Galatea's personality because there's nothing about her in the original myth. <laughs> and so that was really um, a huge, huge pleasure to get to just sort of let her, let her come out and she's quirky and she has this sort of innocence to her because she was, you know, just, just born um, out of stone, but also this really 
deep sense of herself and sense of sort of rightness and wrongness um, that was really fun to play with as well and and made me really appreciate her a lot. She's a person. Yeah. She's a person and she knows how she feels and she knows what she thinks. And Pygmalion is having... I'm, Part of me was having a little bit of fun thinking about Pygmalion in a room with Cersei. Lose his mind. He would lose his mind completely. And then hopefully she would turn him into a pig. But I mean, yes, dude would lose his mind. And this whole idea of respectability and I get to mold and shape. Exactly. No, actually, people show up as who they are. Yes. I mean, we've seen this with babies across centuries. I mean, (laughs) they show up and they show you exactly who they are and you can choose to believe it or you can say, oh, well, this is not convenient. And they are who they are when they walk into the world. That it is so true. It is so true. And, you know, we can respond and we can, you know, help them channel who they are, but people are who they are. Absolutely. I love that idea of Pygmalion in a room with Cersei. I do think Cersei would (laughs) take him up. Totally. And one of the things that I appreciate, Cersei, and obviously we're going to bring your other work into this because it's such a vibrant body and you've introduced so many people to the classics. And yes, these are stories that have been around for millennia, literally. But at the same time, to some people, they didn't necessarily feel accessible. To some people, they felt like homework. I mean, we're going to get to Emily Wilson in a minute. Oh, yeah. You and I share a love of a translator called Emily Wilson and, and her work with the Odyssey um, because she's brought it to life in a way that you do in a different scale with your novels. I mean, you did, you turned Achilles into a person, you turned Circe into a person. And part of it is you're showing us who they are, but you're also showing us that they're capable of learning how to love mm-hmm. and love unconditionally. And I'm wondering, is love the thing that makes us human? I mean, I absolutely think so, but I, I think it's it's more than just love because the gods okay. who are, you know, sociopathic narcissists in Greek right. mythology, basically, if we're mm-hmm. going to get, mm-hmm. you know, diagnostic, are capable of what they call love, you know, passion, obsession. But love, I think that sort of unconditional type of love, that selfless love, the compassionate love, empathetic love, those are things that you really see so rarely from the gods, but you see so strongly from humans. And it, it is it is such an important thing in the world. And it's something that I, I keep coming back to. I mean, part of what I loved about um, Patroclus and, and you mentioned the, the psychology aspect, and that's really what I love is sort of taking these myths that where the psychology is implied and, you know, teasing it out and really creating three-dimensional people and finding the little breadcrumbs to try to build a character that is, you know, kind of rooted in in some details from the original stories, but also, you know, has imagination and fullness and and character arc. So one of the things that drew me to Patroclus was these small details from Homer about how um, he's described as being kind to everyone and always gentle. And those were huge pieces of of what made me love the character and also, you know, brought into the character. And and Circe has a similar detail in Homer. She's described as um, having, uh, you know, the dread goddess who speaks like a human. And that, again, that humanity, that ability to feel empathy. And and although the part of her story that gets remembered is the part where she turns men into pigs, actually, she's really compassionate to Odysseus. Once he and she come to an understanding, 
She takes care of him. She helps him get past the monsters that are coming ahead. She helps him with the ritual he has to do to call the dead prophet out of the underworld. I mean, she is really this benevolent, kind, healing presence in his Mm. story, although that's not the part people tend to remember. And so the empathy and the compassion of these characters and and similarly with Galatea were really kind of what, what drew me to them. That even though they make mistakes, even though they can be reckless and they're very different from each other, but they they have this core desire to connect with other people and to understand other people. And I think that to me, that that desire to connect, that's the soul piece of the whole thing. Whether whether we're looking at Circe or Galatea or Song of Achilles. The soul of the book, the soul of the character, however you want to define the voice of the character. I mean, that desire to connect. I mean, we have all of these other characters that are all about the power, right? Sometimes they want power over other people. Mostly they just want power over themselves. And I think it's fair to say that as humans, we all want power over ourselves, at least. Some of us take it a little further. Some people mistake themselves for Greek gods. (laughs) We we have other words for this, but... (laughs) When we get these characters and their big beating hearts, I mean, Galatea has a moment with her kid where she's like, oh, I don't, I don't want to scare my kid. I don't want to scare my kid. Like, my kid is not prepared for this. And it's just, it's a tiny moment, and yet it's not. It's really, you stop for a second and you go, yeah, I absolutely believe this woman who did come onto the planet as a statue, <laughs> totally buy into the fact that she doesn't want to scare her kid. Yeah. It's amazing to see those moments. But, you know, can we talk about character and voice for a second? I know Galatea sort of came to you in this three-hour rush in the middle of the night, which (laughs) I love that idea. But these are all ideas that you've been toying with over books and over time. And, I mean, probably even started when you directed that production of Troyes and Cressida, right? Mm -hmm. Yes. I I mean, I think that that is something that, you know, I, I love voice. I love a novel, a strong voice. I love characters with strong, distinctive voices. And I've always been drawn to theater because, you know, theater is all about voice. Um, and the actors and, and the playwright and the director work together to bring those voices out. And so, as as you mentioned, I had directed this production of Troilus and Cressida, which was, that was my aha moment for getting to adapt. Because up until then, I'd been an academic who was working on this stuff from an academic perspective. And then I'd been a writer, but not about classical stuff. And then I directed Trails and Cressida, Shakespeare's version of the Iliad. Um, amazing, funny, bitter, <laughs> very biting about all these characters. And for the first time, I thought, wow, I could give voice to these characters. You know, I could shape how the story is told. I could be part of animating it, not talking, not, not just talking about how other people have animated it, but I could bring something to the table. Since then, voice is, is still really important to me and kind of like I'm directing my own novel. Yeah, yeah. I have to be able to hear it yep. <laughs> in my head. So it's very auditory for me and I have to be able to see the scene in front of me. And I think it's, that's part of what took me so long with Song of Achilles is that I couldn't find Patroclus's voice. I kept right. sort of reaching for it and reaching for it and and sifting through it and trying things and feeling like I got it and then realizing it was terrible and trying mm-hmm. it. And same thing with Cersei. And so part of the shock with Galatea is that the voice was right there from the beginning. Right. And I, I think that that happened for a couple of different reasons. I think partially it happened because um, I had been working with the text so intensely for mm-hmm. so long mm-hmm. and sort of pushing back at it mentally, <laughs> um, you know, discussing it with my students, 
thinking about it, coming back to it, you know, sometimes you just get lucky. <laughs> sometimes you just get the muses and and they show up for you. It's really fun to have written in three such distinctive voices and and spent time with three such distinctive characters. And I love the sort of, there's this touch of like wryness and, and dryness in Galatea's voice, this kind of subversive uh-huh. uh, aspect to her that I really enjoyed. Going back to subversion, um, <laughs> she's not afraid to say the absolute truth in a way that uh-huh. reveals how absurd, you know, the world around her is. I have some elderly New England aunts. <laughs> who sound remarkably like Galatea. <laughs> I am not the only person who has those kinds of people in my life. <laughs> we have all been there where the person says, and you're just like, okay. You know, it's not a young person who yeah. says it. And it's quite exciting to actually see it on the page. But I want to go back to, well, the oral storytelling that goes with something like the Odyssey or the Iliad or Ovid or whatnot. All of these things, originally these stories were told verbally, out loud. They weren't necessarily written on the page. People weren't sitting around, you know, unfurling scrolls and going through these stories. These They were acted out. They were told. Yeah. And maybe sometimes it was one dude at the front of the room telling the story. But I mean, you are kind of sort of nodding back to the tradition that these come out of as you're sitting here working. Absolutely. And that is so important to me. And, and I think that that also goes back to that sort of accessibility aspect is is that sometimes we can look at the myths and people feel alienated from them. They feel like they're old and they feel like they're boring. But the Iliad and the Odyssey were like, you know, going to the movies. Um, it was like going to see a, a really exciting play and they were incredibly gripping and vivid and people were singing them and performing them and the audience was responding. And whoever the bard was who was telling the story could, you know, change it up <laughs> as they went if they wanted to. They could sort of improvise. Um, as they went, that's how the Iliad and Odyssey in particular are written with these sort of repetitive formulas so that therefore you can, you know, play with them a little bit. You can substitute if the audience is really loving the Cyclops scene with the gore and the blood and the, you know, I right, the blinding, then you can go, you can spin that out for another 20 lives if you want. To me, they feel so vivid and so living and and so at their best when when you really dig into that kind of performative aspect. And so oftentimes when I'm writing, I do actually imagine that my characters are mm-hmm. kind of like, you know, one person shows delivering the monologue of, of their life. So I, I try to read aloud a lot to myself when I'm editing and revising yep. because I want it to have that auditory presence. Um, that's really important to me. And it's this actually maybe is, is, is the moment for Emily Wilson, but yeah. <laughs> Part it's of, always the moment for Emily yeah, Wilson. <laughs> completely true. Completely true. Um, I love her translation of the Odyssey. I love all her translations. I mean, she is such a smart scholar, but part of what she did with the Iliad and the Odyssey, with, with sorry, she's only done the Odyssey. The Iliad mm-hmm. is coming, but I'm so excited I that <laughs> 2024, fall 2024. Oh, is, there's a schedule for it? That's what I've heard. That's what I've heard. I have not seen a jacket. I have not seen, but I heard oh my gosh. fall 2024, and I'm hoping it's. To, I mean, it, listen, it's going to take as long as it takes. Exactly. I can be patient, she, but she needs to do I did hear next yeah. fall. So oh <laughs> fingers gosh. crossed. That is really, really <laughs> exciting. Um, thank you. <laughs> you you're welcome. <laughs> <laughs> but with the Odyssey, part of what happens, you know, when you're translating Greek poetry or Latin poetry into English is that one line of Greek poetry can easily become like three lines of English. And if you multiply that over the entire Odyssey, it gets like really bagged out and really slow 
And it doesn't have the speed of Homer. Like Homer moves, it's suspenseful, it's exciting. Um, it's meant to be edge of your seat, as I said. It's like meant to be going to, you know, an action movie um, that also happens to be beautiful poetry. So what Emily Wilson does so beautifully is keep that forward motion and mm-hmm. really keep that excitement and that suspense because she committed to the same number of lines in English as in Greek, which is very impressive. And um, you can feel it when you read it. Like when I, the first time I got an early review copy of her Odyssey and I was reading it and I was like, oh my gosh, I hope Odysseus is going to make it. And I was like, oh, wow, <laughs> look how skillful this is. <laughs> That's amazing. That is, t- And I have to say, she brought me back to the, I mean, like a lot of people, I studied it in school. It was not my thing. I did a couple of years of Latin. It was not my thing. <laughs> and then I heard about this translation and the choices that she was making with her translations, and not just what you just described in terms of the length and everything else, but even word choice yeah. and, and just turning the thing on its ear. I got really excited for the first and sat down of my own volition. No one gave me homework. This was not bookseller homework. Like, oh, let's go check out a new edition of the Odyssey. I just wanted to see what she could do with language, because if we're going to live with these legends and these myths and all of these histories, I do think they need to, the interpretation should evolve with us as human beings. And as we move forward, and I don't, you know, at one point you talked about how you were a little worried, this is years ago. When before or just as Achilles was coming out and you were thinking, well, you know, as I was writing this, I was a little concerned people might want to gatekeep me. And, you know, classicists don't always have a great sense of humor about these things and whatnot. And I can totally see that. I can absolutely see that this idea that the Academy is going to just sort of sniff at you be like, well, what are you doing? And there were a couple of reviews that were a little snotty. And I was just like, you know, the whole point of books, though, is to open the world. Yes. And to show you. And I, you know, Pat Barker's done it. She's gone on and told her version of the Trojan War. I mean, why can't we all just sit down and say, I mean, remember that movie, The 300 or whatever it was? Yes. Like, There are plenty of people who saw that movie who are never going to read the actual history. Yes. <laughs> like, it's yes. just not. So why not just bring everyone to the table and see where we go? I, Absolutely. I'm good idea you. to me. <laughs> <laughs> yes. I'm with you 100%. And I, and I think that, that there gets to be sometimes this sort of feeling of like, well, that's not the right version or that's not my version or that's not but you know the ancients didn't think of it that way i mean there were so many different versions of these stories and you could talk about homer's version but then there was also you know the tragedian's version you know aeschylus's version and euripides's version and ovid's version and virgil's version and chaucer and then there was shakespeare and you know margaret atwood and derek walcott like you know there is an unbroken line of retelling and those are just you know some of the ones we have but we know that like visual artists were interpreting it differently. And just, you know, grandparents were telling their grandchildren different versions of the story. I mean, there are just so many. Part of mythology is that it's this multifaceted, kaleidoscopic thing where you can always find something new in it. So I, I, there are definitely versions I have personal preference for, but I, one of my favorite things is to see a great retelling of a myth that completely upends the way I have thought about the myth before and shows me something new. There's an amazing um, play called Hurricane Diane by the playwright Madeline George that is a, a retelling of the Bacchae. And I have always loved the Bacchae. That's the one where Dionysus comes to town and King Pentheus fights Dionysus. Sort of, there's this sort of struggle between the two of them and it does end with a beheading. 
but <laughs> as as many tragedies end with a lot of blood, uh, you know, you know, it happens. Um, but it's a really exciting play, and I'd always, you know, very much identified with King Pentheus. And then I read Madeline George's play and I thought, oh, forget that. Oh my gosh, I'm, I'm completely, now I'm all for Dionysus, 100%. So I love that. I feel like that's that's one of the great pleasures of adaptation is it makes us see the world in a different way. It makes us open our eyes and reconsider the source material. Mm-hmm. And part of it too, honestly, if I think of stuff like, you know, Laura Olympus, for instance, the webcomic, um, mm-hmm. you know, that's a different way of looking at some of the material that, you know, I'd never seen the webcomic until the books came out and I was like, oh, this is kind of, the art is great, but it's very sort of 1950s, mid-century modern. And I'm like, okay. Yeah. Okay. And then, you know, you see some of the art, like say in the Met or wherever you might be, there's a lot of fine art from, you know, the 1800s and the 1900s and the early 21st century where you're like, yeah, I wouldn't have. Okay. And, but again, (laughs) like we keep coming back to the source material. We keep coming back to the source material. And I just kind of find it fascinating, the people that want to hold on to, as you said earlier, like sort of the truth to be. I mean, there's this sort of push and pull between nostalgia and actual memory. Yeah. And I think you represent that really well across all three of the books. But at the same time, there are people who really, really want to hold on to the nostalgia of the thing that was not actually what it was. Yes. And then there's the actual memory. And that can be your characters. Yeah. That can be readers. That can yeah. be other translators. <laughs> yeah. That can be all of us at yes. once. Yes. And everyone brings their own, you know, biases and their own preferences and their own. And so I, I always feel like as a reader, I always want to go in ready to be changed, ready to be transformed by what I'm reading, ready to be expanded. And, and mm. that's what I love about books is that, is that they, you know, they work on you. Um, kind of like magic and you know but but what you're saying is is so powerful and actually there's this great example of that happening in the world of classics right now okay which is the whole thing about the statues being painted which is that we are so used to seeing the statues as these pale austere you know that pale marble and that's how we think of them and that's how we think the ancients saw them and tons of schools of thought around art have been based on the idea that the statues were that pale pale color but they weren't. They were brightly painted in the ancient world. And so, you know, it took two people to make those beautiful things. It took the sculptor and then it also took the painter. They're now doing exhibitions. I think they just did one at the Met where they show sort of recreations of what they look like painted. And when you first see them, oftentimes people have the reaction of like, what? No, that can't be. <laughs> but that is that is in fact what it was. And, and I feel like the ability to grapple with new information, new perspectives, you know, an overturning of, of what we thought we knew. And that's actually what I, to me, you know, I'm a total classics nerd. And I, I love the fact that even though classics is very old, we're always finding new stuff out. You know, we're getting the technology to read the scrolls that are too fragile to be opened. We can scan those statues and figure out maybe what some of the pigments were and what the colors might've been that they were using. You know, we find a new boat at the bottom of the ocean and it tells us, so there's always something new to learn. And that's what I love. Yeah. And nostalgia really is just another kind of fairy tale. Yes. It really is. And so all of these people who are walking around saying, well, X, Y, or Z in the past was better or smarter or faster or whatever. It's just like, no, it's still a fairy tale. Yeah. I mean, even when we're reading people like Homer, <laughs> <laughs> you can interpret some things however you'd like. And again, this comes back to translation and it comes back to interpretation in a million different ways. 
I really would like people to not lose sight of that. I would really, really like people to think about the fact that, you know, nostalgia can be something that is not helpful. Yeah. It can be fun sometimes. It can be goofy. It can be, but it can also hold you prisoner in ways that, you know, I might argue that Pygmalion has a little nostalgia problem. <laughs> yes, absolutely. <laughs> a little nostalgia problem. Absolutely. And I do think one of the best ways to counter any kind of overwhelming nostalgia is reading. Yeah. I think you just have to read as much as you can, yes. as often as you can. So can we talk about some of your literary influences for a second? Because you're not just a classicist. You're not just a Shakespeare fan and you know student. There's a lot that you've pulled from that I really appreciate hearing about. So can we talk about that for a second? Sure. Um, and I'm always so hesitant to say literary influences because who knows if they actually, I mean, I would say literary loves. Okay, fair enough. <laughs> Writers fair that enough. I, I studied and adored and who changed my life in, mm -hmm. in showing me how you can write. These are the kinds of things that change all the time. I mean, I've had people ask me like, how many books do you read? I have no idea how many books I read in a year. Yeah. I have no idea how many books I'm reading. <laughs> actually, at the moment, I'm not entirely sure. So I, for me, I feel like as a bookseller, I pull from all different periods, but I don't have like a permanent top 10 mm. desert island reads kind of thing. Mm. I have writers that spoke to me at one point that I'm kind of like, oh, that's adorable. Yeah. I'm good now. <laughs> good. Yes. Yes. And I'm a big rereader and I, I mm -hmm. love to go back and revisit and sort of see if I still feel the same way. So, I mean, some early readers that I absolutely adored. I loved uh, Banana Yoshimoto's Kitchen was one oh, of my yeah. favorite <laughs> books. I, I read that so much. It's, it's, it's brilliant. It's beautiful. It's really haunting. Yeah. Um, it's about sort of loneliness and, and yep. wanting to connect and found family. And it blew me away. It was like on a table in, in a Barnes and Noble when I was in high school and I yep. picked it up because I liked the cover. And then I just completely fell in love with it. I loved uh, Isabel Allende, The House of the Spirits. I read a lot of her work um, mm -hmm. early on and sort of the the elements of the fantastical while also dealing with, you know, issues of justice and family and all of that. I mean, that was something that I was, I was amazed at how strongly she could speak um, sort of politically and from a justice perspective, while also being totally rooted in family. And then these sort of fantastical, supernatural, um, magical realist elements that were really amazing. I mean, that, that was mind blowing to me. Amy Tan was one of my favorite, favorite writers. I mean, the it, still, the Joy Luck Club still just blows the top off my head every time I read it. I just think, wow, what an incredible act of psychological um, detailing and, mm -hmm. and psychological depth. Um, I loved Nora Ephron. <laughs> I read a lot of Nora Ephron. I love The Bluest Eye, I feel like, Changed My Life by Toni Morrison. Um James Baldwin was always, always, I started with Giovanni's Room, but um, moving onward to, you know, his essays, I feel like whenever my brain is getting muddy and unclear, it's like, just read James Baldwin, because he, he's so sharp and smart and clear, it like blows all the cobwebs away. He's incredible. Um, the Boot in the Attic is one of my favorite books of all Julia time. Tsuka, oh Julia Tsuka. Oh. oh my God. I can't, I don't even know how she did what she did in that book. It is like a perfect, I mean, I don't want to use the word perfect, but it is, it is this unbelievable gem of a book. And I basically am always excited to read it. <laughs> I'm always excited to pick it up and read it. That collective Greek chorus of a voice though. I mean, it's that collective we, it's all of the women who are picture brides 
yeah. telling the story. And it's when it's done well, yeah. it's kind of like that close second person to like when that's done, like um, Mohsen Hamid's How to Get Filthy Rich in Rising Asia, like that's when the yeah. second person is used to great effect in all of the right ways. And yeah, what she does with voice in Buddha in the Attic is... It's amazing. It, it Yeah, and honestly, I... I do use the perfect word to describe her last novel, The Swimmers. Oh, I um, loved it. That that I is it. it is actually physically perfect because yeah. what she does in the first half of the book, and it's tiny, of course. Like she writes these very it was 159 pages, tiny yeah. trim. What she does in the first half of that book, though, where you get the sense of community and you understand exactly where you were. And there's a moment too where someone she says, someone will touch your foot if you're swimming too slow. And I'm like, Julie, does that really happen? I need to know if I'm in a because I'm not a big I'm an ocean person, but yeah. not a public pool person. And she said, oh, no, people will totally touch you. <laughs> I was like, yeah, that can't happen. With me. <laughs> I, can't. I don't have this. Dream. But then the way it flips into the second half of the story, and you're just like, you're so grounded and so centered, and it's so clear yeah. what's been lost. It's amazing what she does, that voice. And I think you and I read a little similarly, and that voice is the thing that will always drive. I mean, there are times where I read for language first, and there are times where you know, I'll look for structure, but I don't need to like my characters. I need to just want to know why they do what they do and yes. how they get to where they are. I mean, reading, I'm going to steal from Cersei for a second. Reading is an act of transformation. Yes. The way she is representative of all kinds of transformation and not just turning the dudes into pigs. Although I, I just really wish I could do that sometimes. <laughs> Well, I think, you know, I think to, to bring it back to Pigman, I totally agree that reading is an act of transformation. And I think writing should also be an act of transformation. Mm -hmm. And that's Absolutely. where Pygmalion fails because yes. he wants to say the same and he does not allow his act of creation to transform. And I feel that as a writer and as a reader, you both go into this being willing to be changed. And, you know, I have, I feel like every, everything I've worked on all, all you know, my two novels and then Galatea all three of them transformed me by the time I finished it. And I feel like that's how it should be. Transformed you as a writer or as a thinker or both? As a thinker, as a person, yeah. um, even yes, as a writer, mm -hmm. I, I think I, you know, when you spend so much time thinking about something and, and living in that world and imagining someone's perspective, I, I think that that changes you. I think also it allowed me to imagine my way. I mean, I wish I were as cool as Cersei. I'm not. <laughs> but getting to live in in her mind and, mm -hmm. and in her world and sort of imagine that, it's very powerful. It's very powerful. And and there's a, a humbling aspect to it too. Uh -huh. that, you know, you have to put your own ego and your own agenda aside and allow the story to, to be what it needs to be. Um, and I think even though, you know, in some sense, storytelling is a great act of ego, because here I am putting my, my print on this story at the same time, you have to step back and allow the story to be what it needs to be. And sometimes the way you think it's going is not the way it's going to go. And so, you know, that ability to put your whole self and all your work into it while also stepping back and allow it to, um, to lead you is, is this wonderful push pull of, of writing for me anyway. Is that where the revision piece comes in for you? Because I know you're quite a big fan of rewriting. And um, that is a big part of your craft, though, is sitting with the words. And the, you're, at a, you're editing at a sentence level. Oh, absolutely. I am a compulsive editor. Compulsive. Mm -hmm. um, I edit so much. I mean, some of my scenes have been through, you know, 
hundreds of drafts. Mm -hmm. Um, And I'm always, I mean, they really had to kind of pry Cersei out of my hands that I had (laughs) when I was reading it. And I was like, I was changing the same commas. I was taking them out, putting them back in and taking them out and putting them back in. And after I'd done that like five times, I was like, okay, I have to stop. I have to stop. I have to stop. (laughs) You know, but because it feels going back to that oral, that sort of auditory is like commas are my pauses. They're my breaths. You know, so it starts to feel really important. It's like this comma on this page in this one sentence starts to feel like it's going to make or break the entire story. <laughs> so I have to get it right. Um, so yes, I am a very intensive editor and I, I consider everything and I'm brutal with myself and I read it out loud and and that's all part of it. You know, it's sort of it's kind of like I, I feel like I'm I'm combing hair or maybe wool. I don't know, you know, and, and, and I come and then I hit a snag and I have to stop and fix it. And then I start again. And then I hit, you know, and I do it until it feels as smooth as possible. I think that physicality matters, that physical connection that you have to the words themselves. I mean, years ago, Ayad Akhtar, the playwright and novelist said to me, you know, Shakespeare is meant to be watched. You shouldn't just read Shakespeare on the page. And I think that was the first time, it's slightly embarrassing because it wasn't that long ago, but it had never been quite explained to me that clearly before. And the minute he said that, I was like, oh, okay. Oh, right. Okay. Okay. And it makes perfect sense. And so the way you're describing your connection to your own work makes perfect sense to me because the way the pages fly. And I have to say, I was kind of bummed when Galatea was over because I really, (laughs) it's perfect. Listen, it's exactly what it needs to be. Please don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying this needed to be a novel, but I just, I was sad to let her go. Oh. I think she's kind of great. <laughs> that is the I mean, ultimate She's super great, but I was, I was sad to have to let her go, but I'm delighted that I'm going to be able to hand off <laughs> copies of this book to, to lots of folks. But you know what? I want to go back to transformation for a second because there's a book I think you might groove on called Babel by R.F. Kuang, and it's set at Oxford in an alternative 1830s, which is also the time of the British Opium Wars. Oh my gosh, I just bought that book and I read the first chapter and I really great. I mean, it's really great. You nailed, so now you have to give me like five other recommendations because obviously nailed my taste. (laughs) Well, there's that, but on a slightly different trend though, there's also um, The Book of Goose by Yi and Lee, which is set in a post-World War II rural France and it's an impoverished community. But these two little girls write a book and the book becomes a hit. Mm. And so it's a book about books. It's a book about being a respectable girl or a not respectable girl. It's a book about adolescence. It gets very complicated. And oh, the sentences are gorgeous. Oh my gosh, that is right up my alley. (laughs) Yeah. And it's one of those books where you just want to sit with it. And again, that was another one where I was like, it's over. (laughs) How how is this over? This can't. (laughs) And it really, because you just want to sit with it. And, you know, adolescent girls, and I say this having been an adolescent girl, (laughs) um, we're a handful. (laughs) Most of us are a handful. And a lot of it, too, comes down to this whole idea of, you know, behaving well or behaving properly or being respectful. Those are not rules we're ascribing to ourselves. And so to have someone like Cersei or Galatea just be like, "Mm, yeah. Let's talk about this for a second. (laughs) Those are the two I'm wild for now. I'm sure if I sat down, I could, you know, rattle off a whole list. But those are the two that I'm sort of carrying around and thinking about, you know, out in the wider world and and sort of enjoying. And also, I mean, having an alternative outcome to the Opium Wars, it was, um, you know, stuff happens in Babel. Lots of stuff happens. And 
it's not necessarily what you might expect, but again, it's an act of transformation. I mean, and the entire story, these kids end up, it's, I can't say anything. I can't wait. I cannot. <laughs> wait. Oh. <laughs> and it's going to fly. I mean, it's, it's not little, but it flies. And, you know, again, you're covering a lot of ground with your books too, and they fly. Well, that to me, I feel like I, I owe that to, first of all, thank you. And if it's true, I owe it to theater because okay. in theater, if something is slow, if a scene is mm-hmm. moving slow, you can feel it. It's like, mm-hmm. oh no. And so when I would direct plays, you know, I, I used to put signs um, backstage right before the actors would go on that said faster, faster, louder, louder. Um, we were doing it outside, so you really had to be loud. <laughs> yeah, that's awesome. Uh, but also faster, faster, because this idea, you know, I this was something I was working with, with not professional actors, but with, mm-hmm. you know, either early career actors or teenage actors. And so they were still thinking that the most powerful thing is if I slow down. It's like, no, that's not always true. You got to keep the pace up. And, you know, particularly if it's comedy, you have to keep the pace up. But also if it's tragedy, you know, you don't want to just feel like you're stuck in a swamp forever that sometimes things hit harder if they move. And so so I feel like I just, that was such an apprenticeship for me in pacing, um, directing those plays, because you can see it when it doesn't work. And like a five second pause in a stage play is like, feels like an eternity. Um, and sometimes you need that five second pause, right, but right. you got to take it at the right moment. So I, I, that is something I think about a lot when I'm, when I'm writing is that sense of pacing. And if this were on the stage, how would it go? <laughs> Part of me is tempted to add faster, faster, louder, louder. <laughs> on a, I have a, I have a wild set of post-its on the computer monitor that I don't use at the office. And yeah, I think faster, faster, louder, louder. <laughs> to that. May pull a post-it notes on the screen because, you know, I have this very fancy laptop and I, so I don't use this giant screen because I don't really need it. <laughs> <laughs> but I like having post-its because you sort of need to see where things are. I'm yes. obviously a very visual person, but mm. all that said, we have Song of Achilles in a new edition, mm. which is right over my shoulder oh. and it's gorgeous. So that was my sneaky way of saying, oh no, seriously, it's really beautiful heart. <laughs> it doesn't exist anywhere else in the world. And I have to tell you too, when I got the galley of Circe, I mean, Song of Achilles, and you know, I flew through that too, but when I got the galley of Circe and I saw that jacket, I was just like, oh, everything is right about this package. And, you know, I'm a bookseller. I get excited about these things. But the way they sort of captured the entirety mm. of the story and Circe, and, you know, I'd forgotten that Medea had a relationship to Circe because sometimes stuff falls out of my head, but it was really great. <laughs> <laughs> All of it was so satisfying. Thank you. I feel like as a writer, I've lucked out so much in terms of mm-hmm. covers. I yeah. amazing artists. Um, when I saw this, this Cersei cover, I was just like, yes, that's it. Perfect. Oh my gosh. <laughs> so I, I, as a, I didn't design it. I have no visual skills. I was not involved, but I got to, as soon as I saw it, I was like, oh, I'm, am I the luckiest author? Yes. I think we all had the same response. I think we all had the same response. But you know what? You and I can sit quietly and just wait for the next Emily Wilson translation of the <laughs> I think that's really, it's like, oh, wait, it's a year. Okay. We can, we, Madeline, we can make it a year. We can yes, make, we can it, make it. We can make it. <laughs> Is there anything you've been reading recently beyond that first chapter of Babel that, that sort of made you think, oh, wow, swing. This is great. 
Oh, absolutely. Um, I love, fell in love with the secret lives of church ladies. So, oh, so yes. good. Yes. Oh yes, my gosh. Yes. Yes. Yeah. yes. That's going to be a rereader for me because I just loved it. I loved every sentence. I loved it all the way through. So. Disha Filia. Yes. Oh, she's amazing. She is <laughs> amazing. She's actually one of the judges who just chose Hernan Diaz's trust for the Kirkus oh. Prize. Have you read trust by the way? No, I have it on okay. my shelf. It's ready. Please, please put it higher on the list because here's the thing. The thing that he does with voice, he flips. There are four sections of the book and you read the first section and you're like, okay. And then the voice flips and then the voice flips again and then the voice flips. And you of all people will get it immediately. It, it is such a satisfying, wild, edgy, smart book about money and people and expectations. And oh, I can't know, wait. it's it's the bomb. So that should, wherever it's sitting now, it should move closer to wherever the TBR pile is in your house. <laughs> Thank you. I will. I will do that. <laughs> Thank you. Um, oh, I'm reading the hero of the hero of the story, Elizabeth McCracken, which oh, I, yeah, yeah. I also just started. So I'm loving good. it. Loving so it. So good. Giant's House. Okay. Giant's House is a book that I will always be fond of. Yeah. I mean, oh. she's, Oh, she does some stuff. She does yeah. some stuff. And so so funny and sharp yeah. and poignant at the same time. It's very that's a that's a hard line to walk to get that mm-hmm. that sharpness of the humor. So I always appreciate that. Yeah, she's amazing. Oh, Madeline Miller, you're amazing too. Thank you so much for making the time. This was so much fun. Galatea is out now. The Song of Achilles is out in multiple formats, including <laughs> this brand new Spitfire <laughs> cover that we have that I'm so pleased by. And if you haven't read Cersei yet, go read Cersei. And definitely go read Emily Miller's translation. <laughs> sorry, Emily Wilson's translation of the Odyssey is, um, it's the bomb. Just go read that. But it was great to see you. Thank you so much. Oh, thank you so much for having me. This was such a pleasure. And I'm going to go bump that up on my list. Hello, readers. It's time for another TBR Top Off, where we recommend books to pick up when you stop in for your copy of Galatea by Madeline Miller. I'm Mark, coming to you from my Barnes & Noble in Cincinnati. And I'm Madison, coming to you from my home Barnes & Noble in Indianapolis. So we've got a couple of great books to discuss. I am very excited for Galatea to finally be out in print. I did a deep dive on her. As soon as I read Circe and Song of Achilles, I needed more. And the only thing to come up was a digital version of Galatea. And I begrudgingly downloaded it. I like a print book. I like to hold something in my hand. I like the smell. I like the feel of a page. But I couldn't not read this book. So I devoured it immediately. And it was great. Uh, but I cannot wait for a print copy. We're going to go ahead and jump into a couple of recommendations. Madison, I'll go first if that's okay. I'll go right ahead. I couldn't do this episode without a store manager from Mansfield, Ohio, named Kelly. Uh, she is my reigning champion of all things mythology and mythology retellings. She's given me so many fantastic reads over the years, and I always appreciate her recommendations and input. So I reached out to her as soon as I found out we were doing a Madeline Miller episode. Hello, Kelly. Thank you. So she highly, highly recommends Silence of the Girls by Pat Barker. This book is fantastic. It's a take on the Trojan War, and it is presented through the eyes of a character named Briseis, who usually is just relegated to a sort of spoils of war character, shoved off into a corner and forgotten immediately. But in this tale, we get to really see what goes down with this character and how her observations really are 
such a perfect lens through which to look at this war and this story. So Briseis was a queen of a neighboring city of Troy. The city was sacked by the Greeks, and she was uh, taken as a concubine by the hero Achilles, and then becomes somewhat of a bargaining chip for other players in this war. But mainly it's the way that she observes these men, these women, these circumstances that are just always at the front of this seeming, seemingly never-ending war. This war really is the breaking ground that decides the fate of the ancient world. And so through this, what some would consider a very meek, minor character, through her eyes is, is just a fascinating look at this myth. It's been told a billion times, but I think in Pat Barker's hands, she researches very, very well. Her prose is beautiful. It stands really above a lot of the retellings that have come out lately. So please do not pass on Silence of the Girls by Pat Barker. Madison, what do you have for us? Well, and I think I will definitely have to pick that up. It does sound amazing. I think it's our resident mythology expert at our store is our bookseller, Kyra. And I think she also really loved it. Mm -hmm. So for my pick, I am actually stepping away from mythology. I kind of focus more on the literary themes you'll kind of see in Galatea. And I chose a classic, which is the Picture of Dorian Gray by Oscar Wilde. Because like you'll see in Galatea with the sculpture, the picture of Dorian Gray focuses on a portrait. So you follow Dorian Gray, who makes a deal with the devil to stay young and beautiful forever. Uh, but at the cost of any like terrible, no good thing he does, it is then shown not on himself, but shown in the soul of the portrait. So the portrait gets more and more grotesque as you read the book and through a bunch of wonderful literary themes that Oscar Wilde put into this classic, you see the unraveling of Dorian Gray's downfall. And what I love about Dorian is that this book gives you a chance not only to see like the art come to life, but also look at the cost of beauty from like a different perspective. So you see this man who was young and beautiful for years and years and years, way longer than he should have been. But at the end, it all kind of unravels and you see like the true cost of this, which I think is a beautiful message um, within the book and why it is one of my favorite, favorite classics. It's the classic I collect. So I have it in a bunch of different languages as well. And that is The Picture of Dorian Gray by Oscar Wilde. Fantastic pick. And pretty timely, too, I think, in our age of curation. This is something that should be required reading. Because curation always comes at a cost. He's like the original anti-hero. Exactly. He would have been an, an Instagram superstar. And that is so disgusting to say out loud, but it's very <laughs> true. Well, that is all we have for today. Thank you so much for tuning in to Port Over. Please make sure to give us a rating and subscribe so you never miss an episode. You can also follow us at Barnes & Noble. I'm Mark. You can follow my home store at BN Westchester. I'm Madison. You can follow my home store at BN River Crossing. Thanks, everybody. Happy reading. Bye. Thank you for listening. Poured Over is a Barnes & Noble production. To help other readers find us, please rate and review the show wherever you listen to podcasts.